Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the wonderful blessing that you have given us in your word. Lord, we thank you that it teaches us about Emmanuel. It teaches us about ourselves and our relationship with him. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have ears to listen this morning. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would be able to say, Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be edified and built up as a result of looking at your word together. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, is there a sanctuary that you're particularly interested in seeing? Is there a special place in this world that you would like to be able to see inside? Maybe it's the Oval Office in the United States, be able to go to the White House and see uh, where the President of the United States spends his time. It's interesting how that seems to be the one that I'd be more interested in where the Prime Minister of Australia spends his time, the office of the Australian Prime Minister. Maybe you'd be interested to see into the depths of Area 51 in the United States, see exactly what is going on in that military base out in the desert in America. One sanctuary that I was particularly interested in seeing when I was younger was to be able to see Jill's bedroom when I was dating her. Uh, So I started to get to know Jill and I started to see her at uni. I I saw her at work as well. We both worked at Target and I got to know her a bit. We went out on a few dates and, uh, and then I got to meet her parents and visit her house. And it's interesting to see into the girl that you're interested in, see into her room. You get to see her cuddly toys that are on her bed that she's had uh, since she was very young uh, and some of them she still has even to this day. You get to see her desk where she works. You get to see her books, the kinds of things that she was interested in reading. Uh, You get to see uh, what uh, music she listens to. So many things are revealed about the person if you get to see into their bedroom. And I was very interested to see that, to learn a little bit more about her. Uh, What are her interests? And see the place where she spent most of her time in her life. Uh, sleeping and then maybe daydreaming there at the desk, working there, maybe even daydreaming about me, uh, the handsome prince to one day come into her life. Uh, But it's very interesting to see into somebody's sanctuary, to look into their room, their special place. What is God's sanctuary? What is the place of God? What does his room look like? And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we come to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through to 10. We're going to be looking at God's sanctuary, particularly his earthly sanctuary, but then we'll mention his heavenly sanctuary as well. Because God gave instructions to his people in the Old Testament as to what his sanctuary, what his room should look like. And there's quite detailed instructions on that in the Old Testament, and we read some of those from Exodus this morning. But also in Hebrews chapter 9, the author reminds his readers of this earthly sanctuary and then has a point to make about the construction of it and the work that was done inside it. So what did God's room look like? What did his sanctuary look like? Well, the tabernacle in the Old Testament was actually made up of two rooms, There was one tent, but it was divided with a curtain into two rooms. And those two rooms are described for us in verses uh, 
uh, 1 through to verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 9. So I encourage you, have your Bible open there as we look at these verses together so that you can get a little bit of idea of what God's room would have looked like. And so in verse 2 we read, A tabernacle was set up, and in its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. So if you think of the tent, you've got one room, it's called the holy place, it's the first room, it's the outer room, and in it you have several things. You have a lampstand, uh, which was made of hammered gold, it was ornamented with almond blossoms, and in that room, uh, that lampstand had seven candles on it that were then kept burning. And even the trays and tongs that were used to, uh, to facilitate the lamps to continue burning was made of gold as well. So you've got this very fancy, lovely gold lampstand in this first room. And of course, everything that's within this uh, tabernacle, within this room of God, has some sort of significance. And we would say that the, the lampstand shedding light, constant light, continual light, would of course remind us that God is the one who gives light. He's the one who gives physical light. He's also the one who gives spiritual light. And so there's this reminder with this continually burning lampstand here in the outer room, the first room of God's tabernacle. Also, there was a special table that was there. So you see that there was a lampstand and there was a table. And this was made of acacia wood, uh, very ornate, overlaid with gold. Um, it had gold rings on it so that you wouldn't have to pick it up. So the, um, the priest would put poles through it. They wouldn't touch it. They would carry it with these gold rings. And dishes that were on it were made of pure gold as well. So very special table with special dishes on it. And then on that table was the consecrated bread. It says that there in verse 2 for us, in its first room, in, in this first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. So this was bread that was prepared by the uh, priests, and it was put out, it was changed weekly. There would be 12 loaves for the 12 tribes of Israel. And of course, this was symbolic as well of the way that God provides for his people. You can say he's the one who provides us with food, and that is a reminder there in God's room, in God's house, in this outer room, is this consecrated bread. Then there is a second room. So we've got the holy place with its uh, tab, uh, the, the lampstand, we've got the table, we've got the consecrated bread upon it. And then there's this curtain that divides God's tent into two rooms, and you've got the most holy place in the second room. Verse 3 says, Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. And in it, we've got a number of things as well. We've got the golden altar of incense, it says there in verse 4. So there's this sweet-smelling incense that is burning there within this room. And then we also have the Ark of the Covenant is said to be in this room as well. Verse 4 it says, Which had the gold, golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. So this is a special um, box that was made uh, according to God's instructions. And it was made in a very special way. It was covered in gold and it also contained a number of things within it. But it symbolized God's presence. Where the ark was, God was said to be. And it had a number of things inside it, which the author mentions for us. In it, it had the gold jar of manna. So when the Israelites were in the desert, 
God provided food from heaven for them. Each day they would go out and they would collect some manna and they kept a little pot of it. Uh, So when the manna uh, stopped, when they went into the promised land, they kept a little pot of it and they put that pot with the manna in it inside the tabernacle, inside the, I should say, the ark. Sometimes the word tabernacle refers to the whole tent. Sometimes it just refers to the little ark. And the manna in there really is a reminder that God provides food even under harsh conditions, even under times of suffering. When the people were being punished as they were walking for 40 years round in the desert, God continued to provide them with food. He provides for them again and again. Also within the ark, we've got the staff that had budded, Aaron's staff. It's mentioned there in verse 4. Aaron was the first priest that was given to God's people, and he had a staff. And there's an incident in the Old Testament in Numbers 17 where there's a challenge to Aaron's leadership. And so God says, um, I'm going to show who is in authority in my people, um, who is the authoritative person. And they put their staffs, one from every tribe, and the staff that buds is said to be God's chosen priest. And it was Aaron's staff that actually budded, that um, it was a stick that he was walking around with, but then it suddenly came to life and actually blossomed uh, overnight with uh, even fruit on it. It had almonds actually appear on it. And so they've kept this staff and they put it in the ark. And it signifies then God's provision of leaders for his people, that he provides priests, he provides people with authority to look after his people. And that's their reminder that's there by keeping that in the ark. Also, what else is in there? In the ark, there are the stone tablets of the covenant. We see that in verse 4. The stone tablets of the covenant, which are given by God to Moses. Uh, these are When he was up on the mountain, he was given them. And they really are a testimony that God speaks and makes promises to his people. These are the promises of God that he makes to his people. And so they're kept in the ark as a reminder that God speaks and that God is a God of promises. He makes promises to his people. And then we also hear that on top of the ark is some significant things as well. In verse 5, it says, Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory. What are the cherubim? Well, they are angels, um, a particular type of angel. Uh, we think often of cherubs being cute, cuddly little babies often. If you would Google the word cherub, you'd probably see little images of babies. Now, these are scary beings with wings, and they are sitting over the ark, and they're the cherubim of glory, representing God's glory. So God's presence is said to be between those cherubim's wings, which overshadow the ark. And underneath the wings, on the top of the ark, is the atonement cover. It says there in verse 5, Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing, overshadowing the atonement cover. So on top of the ark is where blood was put to cleanse the people of their sins. And it was also called the mercy seat by some uh, translators in the past, which demonstrates God's mercy. So there's this reminder again and again as you go through the different rooms of God of something about God, that he's a provider, that he's the one who provides light, he provides food. He also provides leaders of his people, but he also is one who is holy and has angels serving him. 
And he also is a God who shows mercy by this atonement cover that is on top of the ark. So God's room, God's sanctuary, is a very special place. Very. It would have been a marvellous experience to be able to go into God's sanctuary, into the outer room and into the inner room. Just think of the experience, even the smells and the light. You go in, it's sheltered from uh, outside light, and there the candles are continuously burning. You've got the sweet-smelling incense there. You've even got the smell of baked bread, which is a lovely smell. Um, they even say that, uh, if I remember with my sister when she was selling her first home, that she got my mum, who bakes her own bread, to go over and bake some bread that morning of the open house so that as people come in to view the house and to consider buying it, they can smell fresh bread. And it may open their senses a bit more and their wallets to spend a bit more on the house. Think of that as you go in to God's sanctuary, the smell of bread, the, the look of it. Everything is covered in gold. Gold, 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 gold plating everywhere. Rich ornamented curtains, ornate wood carvings. It would have been a marvellous experience. And then the symbolism, as you understand what's going on and what are the reminders of all these things, there's special things that are set aside to, because of the significance that they hold. And then to consider that in that inner room is God's presence. This is as close as you come to God on earth. He was said to be present there between the cherubim, over the atonement cover. God was specifically present there. Would have been a marvellous experience to be able to go into God's sanctuary. But it's interesting how limited access was to this sanctuary because the author of Hebrews he's not wanting to discuss all these things in detail you could spend weeks going through this you could go through uh, each item and unpack it in different details but what does he say in verse 5 he says above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover but we cannot discuss these things in detail now he's got a point to make yes he's reminding us of the special place of God and it really was God's place but he's got a point to make and what's the point that he has to make his point is that access to it was very limited we read in the Old Testament who could go into that holy place and how often they could and he then summarizes this for us in verses 6 and following it says when everything had been arranged like this the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry Who got to go into God's holy place? Well, to the outer room, to the second room with the lampstand in it and the the table with the bread on it, the priests got to go in. But only the priests. If you were an ordinary Israelite from another tribe, you never got in to go into that outer room even. The best you could do was go into the courtyard outside the tent. Only priests were allowed to go into that second room, that outer room. And there they would change over the bread, they would keep the lampstand burning, they would do their duties. But then if you were a priest, you pretty much never got to go in there. In all likelihood, you'd get to go in there once in a lifetime and probably for one week. You'd serve there and then you'd go back to your other duties, which you did for the rest of your life. If you're a priest, your access to 
God's sanctuary was very limited. But what about that inner room? Who got to go in there? Well, the text tells us. Verse 7 says, But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Who got to go into the inner room? Only the high priest of all the people of Israel. Only the high priest was allowed to go into where that ark was with the angels on it and the mercy seat and the staff and the pot of manna that is in there. Only the priest. And how often did he get to go in? Only once a year. He went in just once a year on the Day of Atonement. And they say that he didn't stay long in there lest he put the Israelites in terror. He would go in, he would do his business for that one day of the year, put the blood on there, and then he would get out. Why? Because they were fearful that he would be in that presence of God and be struck down. There's actually a a story about this. um, We can't be sure that it's actually true. But they said, um, many hundreds of years after they stopped this practice, when the temple was destroyed, they said that, uh, and there was this report, that they used to tie a rope around the high priest for when he went in. Why would they do that? Because if he was struck down and died in there, no one was allowed to go in and get him out. And so the only way they'd be able to get his body out is to pull on the rope and drag him out because otherwise you'd have to wait till next year and the new high priest was allowed to go in and get the body out. It was a highly restricted area to go into that inner room. Only one man was allowed to go in and he was only allowed to go in once a year and he did his business and got out pretty fast because he was going into the presence of God. Now, why was it so highly restricted? Why was it so restricted to go into God's outer room and then this inner room, the most holy place? Well, it's because of the sin of the people. It's told to us that the priest could only go in once a year and he never went in without blood, it says in verse 7, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Because of the sin of the people, they deserve to be struck down. And so if he was to go into God's presence, into God's most holy place, he had to take a sacrifice with him. He had to take blood with him for his sins and for the sins of the people. Even sins that may have been committed in ignorance. They would know about many sins and they'd pay for those with some blood. But it says they even he offered blood for sins committed in ignorance. Often we minimise sins that we don't know about. But they can cut us off from God. And so he had to offer blood so that those sins would be atoned for as well. But we see here that even as he offered the blood, there was never quite a certainty that their sins were indeed paid for. We see in verse 9 that it says, This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. If the blood was cleansing the priest of his sins, then he should have been able to go in no problems. Why was he so scared to stay in there? Because his conscience wasn't clear. And so he had to get out fast. 
because his conscience said, you're still not worthy to be in here. And all the rituals that they went through, they didn't cleanse him of his sin or the sins of the people. And that's what verse 10 says. All these things that they did, they are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. All these washings that they went through, the sacrifices that they did, they didn't make up for the sins of the people. And so the area remained a highly restricted area. To go into God's sanctuary was simply off limits. You didn't go in. So what is the point of all this for the Christian? Why is the author of Hebrews bringing all this up? It seems rather quaint, maybe slightly interesting, but why bring it up with Christians? Well, he says that there's a point to be made from this. And the Holy Spirit was making a point by having this tabernacle set up. And that's said to us in verse 8. Look with me, chapter 9, verse 8. It says, The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was standing. The Holy Spirit was showing by having this tabernacle set up. So God saying, you need to have this tabernacle, was showing something. What was he showing? That access to God was still not possible. Yes, there's a sense where the tabernacle, with God's presence there, illustrates that God's with his people, the Israelites. It was wonderful that these people, who God had called to himself, had God living with them, God dwelling with them. The tabernacle was set up in the midst of the camp and everybody was around it. God was dwelling with the people. But there's also a stark reminder. God is living there, but we don't really have access to him. The curtain blocks us off from God. Is the reminder that the Israelites should have been getting all the time. Rather than saying, God is with us, they should be going, yeah, he's with us, but we don't really have access to him. Only the high priest gets to go in and once a year and we're kind of scared for him while he's in there. The Holy Spirit was making a point by this that access to God is severely limited. He is in a restricted zone. And the real tabernacle, the most holy of places, there's still no way to it. I think verse 8, when he says the most holy place, he's not talking about that inner room within the tent. Verse 8 says, The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was standing. What's he saying there? The way into heaven had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. The most holy place there is a reference to heaven, which is a far more marvellous experience, a far more marvellous place of God than that tent that was here on earth. Yes, it would have been a fantastic experience to be able to go into that tent of meeting with gold all around and wonderful objects and the cherubim there. But to go into heaven is even more marvellous. The streets are made with gold in heaven. The sweet-smelling incense there is the prayers of the saints, Revelation tells us. The cherubim in heaven, they're alive. Those ones in that most holy place in the tent, they're just man-made ones. 
the cherubim in heaven are alive. And the presence of God that was in that most holy place on earth, very different from the presence of God in heaven, where God's throne room is itself. What was the Holy Spirit showing by this earthly tabernacle? He was showing that the way to heaven is not known. If you can't get into the little room of God here on earth, how much more is it impossible to get into the throne room of God, the most holy of all places, into heaven itself? That's what he's showing here by this earthly tabernacle is that God is in a highly restricted zone. And this means that we should never forget that we are not entitled to heaven. We are not entitled to heaven. People want heaven to be accessible to all. It doesn't matter what you believe, whether you're a Christian, whether you're a Jew, whether you're Muslim, whether you're Hindu, whether you're Buddhist, even if you're an atheist, secular humanist of some sort. Heaven... You should be able to walk right on into heaven when you die. This is a common thought. doesn't matter what you believe. You should be able to go into God's sanctuary. You should be able to go into God's place. Even in the last few weeks, I've had a conversation with someone. I don't think I've shared this um, illustration in the pulpit here, but we've got a sign out at the moment. Uh, John 3.36 that says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son shall not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. I had someone read it and talk to me about it and said, Look, that then means pretty much everybody in the world is not going to have eternal life, Joel. And he said, That's a bit unfair, isn't it? You're saying all the Buddhists, all the Hindus, none of them are going in to have eternal life, none of them are going into heaven. I said, well, yeah, it's true, because that's what God says. And we should never forget that we're not actually entitled to heaven. See, the thing is, we have a low view of sin, and then we think that we're entitled to things that we're not entitled to. And that's what I told to this person who had read the sign. We just minimize sin too much. We should never forget that our sin cuts us off, completely off from God. And we're not entitled to go into his place. But what we like to do is minimize our sin. We do it all the time. I, I see it just so powerfully at work within myself. When I sin, I try to justify. I try to minimize it. Even this week, Jill walked into the laundry, stood straight on my gardening shoes which she's always telling her, our kids not to leave the shoes at the step because she'll twist her ankle one day. She pretty much twisted her ankle on my gardening shoes. And she said, oh, your shoes, Joel. Straight away, I had at least three reasons why I left them there. You know, I, I, one of the reasons was I was... Um, oh, the first reason was that there was a clothes area in the way from where they usually belong. They go in a cupboard. And the clothes area was there because it had been raining all week and had clothes on it. And so it was really difficult for me to get in to put them away. So that was the first reason why I shouldn't have put them away. Why I was quite right to leave them there and for her to twist her ankle on them. Second reason was I'd worked really hard that morning and I was in a rush to get to the shower because we had other things to do. And so it was right for me to leave them there for someone to trip on them because... I was in a hurry. And did you see how much work I did that morning? Like, 
you know, that, that justifies leaving them there as well. I came up with multiple reasons straight away to minimise my sin of leaving them where I shouldn't have left them so that someone could injure themselves. And that's what we do. We minimise our sin. We think it's not that serious. And even if we can't minimise it, even if our conscience nags about it, we try to drown it out with other distractions. We drown it out with entertainment, put the TV on, have it blaring in the background. We try to medicate our, our feeling of guilt about our sin, whether it be illegal drugs or legal drugs. But guilt about sin is a God-given gift from him to remind us that we have no right to claim a place in his heaven. We have no right to go into his heaven. We're not entitled to go into his presence. The only thing we're entitled to is hell, not heaven. That's all we're entitled to because of our sin. Even the sins of ignorance keep us out. Amazing what it says there, that the priest had to take in an atoning sacrifice for sins committed in ignorance. We try to minimise the sins that we know about to say that we can then get into heaven. They're not that big a deal. What about even the fact that we have sins of ignorance? They keep us out of heaven. Sins we don't even know about. We should mourn over our sin and the way it cuts us off from God. And remember that it doesn't entitle us to heaven. But there is a way to get into heaven. The tabernacle, this earthly one, reminds us that the way to God is cut off from humanity. But there is a way, and the text here this morning hints at it. In verse 10, it says, in verse 10, they, all those regulations that the priests went through, they are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order, until the time of a reformation that was to come. What is that reformation? What is the new order? Well, it's the one that comes under Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, access is granted to heaven, to the most holy of places. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. The way, a way has been opened into heaven itself. How is that possible? Well, it's because of the blood of Jesus that he has paid for our sins and he has truly paid for them. And the author is going to go on and speak about that in verses 11 and following. And if you want to hear more about that, well, then you need to come back next week. But what I want to remind you today is what the Holy Spirit wants to tell you, in, and he says in verse 8, that we are not entitled to heaven. We forget that. And if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I want to remind you of that fact. You're not entitled to heaven. You're not a good person. You're a bad person, as are the rest of us here this morning. But if you trust in Jesus Christ, he takes you into a highly restricted area and you can go in and have a joy there that surpasses all joys that you'll ever experience in this world. So I encourage you, if you're not a believer, repent of your sins and trust in Jesus today. There's no other way to heaven. And if you are a Christian, continue to remember 
that you're not entitled to heaven? Do you ever think that you have a right to go to heaven? God forbid that we should have such thoughts. May we never forget that we have no right to enter into God's most holy place. It's only by God's mercy, only by Christ's blood, that we can enter into God's most truly glorious of sanctuaries, into the most holy place itself. If you keep this truth in mind, that you're not entitled to heaven, it will humble you from thinking you're bigger than you actually are, but it also reminds you of how privileged you are to know that you're going to heaven through Jesus Christ, that you're going to a place that you're not supposed to be at. And that will give you a joy and help you overcome so much of the pain and suffering that happens in your life. This last week, it's been a bit of a struggle for me in some ways for various reasons, a bit of a down week in some ways. And as I was preparing this message, I was reminding myself of the joy I have that I am going to heaven, even when I don't deserve to be. And that lifts my spirits over anything that Satan can throw at me. It's like we're going into Area 51, but times a billion. Highly restricted base. All kinds of signs up saying, Death, if you come in here, like that you see um, around electricity uh, grids, you know, those where they have the fences up. There's all kinds of signs where, you know, a little person buzzing with electricity all over them and, and you know, skulls, crossbones, that kind of thing. That is the signage around heaven. Highly restricted, alarms going off. You cannot enter this place. But through Christ, he takes you in. He's like a person who has the swipe card that just opens every door, one after another, and you get to go in, and it's a marvellous place inside. Gold everywhere, feasting, consecrated bread was put out in their little early uh, earthly tabernacle, but in heaven, feasting there, God's presence, marvellous. We as Christians have so much to be joyful about when we remember we're not entitled to heaven, but we get to go just the same because of Christ. Does that not give you joy? And does that not want to make you share the gospel with those around you and to encourage others, to encourage other Christians the joy that you have that you are going to heaven despite your sin? Maybe this morning at morning tea, just talk to someone and say, it does make me joyful to know that I'm going into a highly restricted area one day. And encourage them to consider the joy that they should have as well as believers in Christ. Let's come to God in prayer. Let's speak to him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder from your word that you are a most holy God. And we are most unholy. Lord, we thank you for the reminder from this earthly tabernacle that our sin has cut us off from you. But Lord, we thank you for the reminder from your word as well that a new order has come. That you in your mercy have granted access to a highly restricted area for your people through the blood of Christ. 
Oh Lord, we pray that we may never think that we are entitled to heaven, but may we always remember that it's only by your grace. And may this help us to humble ourselves before you, but also may this fill us with joy to know that we're going where we do not belong and it is a most glorious place and we will be there for eternity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.